Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I am Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a special chat room, so Ravinder... Tell us all about it, please. Yeah, we do have a very special chat room. In fact, I've made some great friends in chat room, in the chat room. So, uh, you know, so we're friends out of the chat room too. But it's a really good group of people. They're very, very grounded. They ask really good questions. I'm learning a lot from them and I'm growing a lot in the process. So, uh, I would like everyone to join us there. That's at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. I love your chat room as well. You've got some great comments we'll get to later uh, in the show on your chat room. Okay. <clears throat> now, turning our attention to this week's spotlight, I tried to come up with a title, and after some discussion, settled on any age. That is, the information, especially the spiritual information that we come to trust, should be information for any age, not just a, quote, new age. Especially when you realize that many New Age writings are simply regurgitations of much older material. I recently received a letter suggesting that since I seem to be only interested in fact and science, that I would never fit into the New Age. The writer went on to point out the advantages of of accepting the New Age, including those obtained by virtue of membership. That is, according to them, and I quote, so much of your work is spiritual that it would behoove you to befriend the New Age communities instead of attacking their spokespeople. Close quote. Now, this listener did name a particular author, but I see no necessity for personal comments there, so I've omitted the name. And for what it's worth, I don't believe I attack anyone. That said, let's take a look at what's implicit in this suggestion. But first of all, I want you to know that I highly value subjective experiences, and they cannot be scientifically verified per se, since they are not objective by definition. As such, I honor many who are aligned with the so-called New Age field, such as those that have been aired right here on Provocative Enlightenment, including mediums and psychics. For me, the proof is in the pudding, so... When some would-be seer says the world will be blasted into oblivion come December 21st, 2012, then I'm likely to challenge them. Why? Because doomsday prophecies are a dime a dozen and they've been around for centuries. What's more, when a so-called scientist tells us about the Mayan calendar and misrepresents it factually, I will confront them. I don't see that as an attack. When someone uses the language of science to argue for premises that are truly contrary to what science says, I will readily point that out as well. 
You don't need to baffle Gab with heuristic language of science to express your opinions and experiences. But if you do, well, you're fair game in my book. So when we hear that the rate at which radio waves traveling around the Earth every second, 7.8 times the Schumann frequency, is speeding up, I know I'm hearing quantum woo. That's like somebody telling me the speed of light just increased. When someone argues for cultural relativity, and this person's claim to authority comes because they speak directly to a higher being, which implies that God is saying there is no moral code except as man creates it, then I call BS without mincing words. Do I know for certain that this is wrong? Not any more than I know for certain that I exist. You know, as with Descartes' argument, to doubt one's very existence is not something you're likely to do during the raging pain produced by a ruptured appendix. So I guess on that basis, I'm pretty certain this particular New Age author is out to lunch. We are interested in quality information that informs or inspires. We have heard stories of pets in the afterlife, visions during NDEs and OBEs, revelations about new religious foundations, and so much more. And so long as they are consistent, there are no factually false statements, well, we can all judge them without comment from this radio host. But again, when the statements are contradictory, such as there is only good in the world, but there is a purgatory, then it seems to me that to let that go only promotes confusion. On many occasions, I have seen or heard confusing, even dissonant claims by those who later inform me that they learned the information from some self-proclaimed guru. I am convinced that our ability to think is a gift, and when we fail to use it, we deny the very gift that gives rise to our unique nature among the animals. Thinking is destiny in more ways than one. I urge everyone in my books, my workshops, and during our radio broadcast to think for themselves. Please don't just grab onto some soundbite that feels good. Remember, everyone makes mistakes, including your favorite teacher, author, or whomever. When you hear something like, if it feels good, it's God telling you to do it, think about what that means. Think about telling your children this or posting this message in the local prison. If the statement is true, we should be able to teach it to all, just as we might teach the golden rule. If it needs qualification, be sure to place it in the right context. When you hear stories of grand NDEs, but find that there are also persecutory, there we go, NDEs, think about what that means. But be assured, if there are evil spirits, then there must be life after death. And this is just further evidence for our spiritual benefactors. When you hear love is all there is, think about what is meant by all and how it fits with what you know about the real world. The word Israelite basically means one who wrestles with God. In a sense, those of us truly in search of spiritual wisdom are wrestling to understand the divine creative power that so many just give a name and then move on. 
Words are not things, and strung together with a verb, they do not necessarily mean anything meaningful at all. On this show, we will continue to question and challenge, for we are genuinely seekers of truth and wisdom. So, I guess what I want to say is something like this. We are an any-age show, seeking all-age wisdom. Your thoughts on this, Ravinder? Seeking wisdom, that's what sums it all up, and you cannot seek wisdom without thinking, and that sums up everything that you teach everybody all the time. It's about thinking for yourself. You do have to remember everybody makes mistakes. So your favorite teachers out there, they will all have made mistakes. They'll all have made some doozies of mistakes at some point. Um, When you just allow the authority complex to come into play and you turn off your brain and you just intake all of that information, well, you're not doing yourself any favors at all. I think part of the other problem is, too, that people are afraid or, yeah, they're just afraid to trust themselves. So they have to reach to science for validation of um, subjective experiences. So then you'll get some teachers out there who will also jump on the science and bring stuff in and the authority complex comes into play and you think, oh, this person is so, so intelligent. You know, I don't have the science ability to understand that, but he must be right because he's done that. Now, I will tell you one, one thing. I actually had this experience and I can do it. There was a an author there who was about to go speak but we were talking about you know someone else who was presenting and um, she was going on about how great the science was and I pointed out to her actually there were big holes in the science and she turned to me and said but you're the scientist you understand that stuff to me I don't you know what when we're at these kinds of events they're not teaching rocket science They may be, you know, sometimes throwing out fancy words that sound really cool and all of these great terms. But I will promise you, if you go into these events just remembering the science that you learned in high school, you will quickly see when it is just throwing out words um, and you will actually discern the truth for yourself. And then you will be able to grow. And that's what I keep trying to do. Keep working at it. Keep learning more. But you have to think. Yeah, you've got it right there. You just need to think. That's all there is. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week we discussed Heaven and Hell with Professor Stafford Betty. Dennis wrote, liked your interview of one of my favorite people, Stafford Betty. Though I disagree with Michael Sherman's materialistic bent on notions of life and the afterlife, I don't think there are consequences uh, after death for having been a non-believer. People often believe what they believe without any ill will. If he shares his skepticism based on what he can only perceive with his senses, why should his soul suffer in the afterlife for it? I don't think Christopher Hitchens, who lived a deeply principled existence, deserves judgment for such secular beliefs either. Well, I'll tell you what, Dennis, I totally agree. Either one of those men could be my neighbor any day of the week. Mark wrote, you and Dr. Stafford Betty discussed Neil Donald Walsh's belief that he could talk directly with God. I was then inspired to re-listen to a past show you had with Neil Donald Walsh. You asked him if he was wrong for a girl, if it was wrong for a girl in Pakistan to be stoned because she kissed a guy in public, and if so, whether we should be vocal about 
the immoral nature of the act. I was struck when Walsh responded, quote, Nobody does anything inappropriate given their model of the world. There is no absolute right and wrong. Who would declare it and how would the declaration be made? Close quote. Mark continues in his letter. He then said that the only way such an act could be considered immoral and whether we could be vocal about it is if a majority of the world's population also thought the act was immoral. Walsh's view of morality is based on moral relativism, the notion that there is no absolute moral truth, at least that we could discover. Personally, I don't think that the validity of a moral system is determined by consensus. Rather, it is determined by whether it is based on universal principles of reality. In that sense, one person who has an understanding of moral truth based on principles can and perhaps ought to speak out against the immoral act of stoning the girl. Well, you're right on the mark, Mark, (laughs) and I do so agree. Loretta noted, I so appreciate the chat room. You help me to think, and I get as much from you as I do from the guest. Now, you must love that one, huh, Raph? Of course I do. All right, moving on. Pete wrote, hello, Ravinder Nelden. I want to congratulate you on your 30th birthday. Please continue your good work, which benefits humanity. I only started listening to your radio program, and I love it, and I am hooked. Teresa wrote, Eldon, I am a native of Washington State, now living in Scotland. We miss you, Teresa. I enjoy your radio programs via YouTube and have read a couple of your books. Thanks for keeping up the good work and getting great info out there. Marta wrote, Hi, Mr. Taylor. I have several of your CDs. I would like to say your work is fabulous. It has helped me a lot. Thank you. John wrote, Your programs are awesome. Sarah wrote, Eldon, I have been listening to two of your CDs every day for the last two weeks now, and I love it. Paul wrote, Hi, Mr. Taylor. I am a fan. I have read your books. I have a few CDs, and I just love everything you have to offer. You have made a big difference in my life, and I want to thank you for that. And Pam wrote, Eldon, I am going to give every one of my friends and family an Intertalk CD this year for Christmas. I can't think of a more meaningful gift. Thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you. Thank everyone for your letters and and your support. But, you know, Pam, I totally agree. It's a gift that keeps on giving and can make a real lifetime difference in so many beneficial ways. In fact, one of my favorite gifts uh, is the CD Manifesting Your Vision. To me, that's a special way of acknowledging your support for the dreams of those you care about. You don't need a Manifesting Your Vision, dear. I've used manifesting a vision. I've had some great yeah, experiences. You, you are. You <laughs> okay. are my dream. But we have right. work to do, too, and that's what I use the program for. It's cool. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for <laughs> letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. Now to this week's show, The World's Most Haunted House with William Hall. When you Google haunted houses, there is no shortage of reports. Indeed, entire TV series have been built around hauntings. It would seem that our curiosity is insufficient to explain the attraction ghosts and ghouls have for people of all ages. From popular horror movies to real-life documented cases, the fascination for the dark side of the other side has made millions of dollars for writers and the entertainment industry alike. I remember a well-researched case involving a young woman who was repeatedly raped by a spirit 
even while the cameras of a local university investigation team were rolling. They made a movie out of it titled The Entity, the true story of Doris Bither. The movie retold the investigation that began on August 22, 1974, in Culver City, California, one that was to be unlike any other for Dr. Barry Taff. Doris Bither claimed that spirits would physically attack her. The reports ranged from Doris walking around her home and bumping into the ghost to actual spectral rape. Dr. Barry Taft reported that Doris Bither moved from Culver City to Carson, California, from Carson to San Bernardino, and from San Bernardino to Texas, and finally back to San Bernardino. While jumping around the two states, Doris reported the phenomenon followed her and her family to every place they moved. Now, this haunting is impressive by way of paranormal literature, but today we'll be discussing, we'll focus on the most famous haunting of all, the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. William Hall's excellent book is an unprecedented work. I'm going to suggest if, you know, if you haven't read it, you're going to want to read it. It is a first-hand account. In it, you will read about a crowd of more than 2,000 onlookers who gathered while national media reported jumping furniture, floating refrigerators, and attacking entities. Decades after the publicity quieted down, more than 40 hours of never-before-released interviews with police officers, firefighters, and others are featured in the story as it is told in the world's most haunted house, the true story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street by William J. Hall. William Hall was born and raised in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where the events of this book took place. He watched the news coverage of the Lindley Street haunting on TV when he was 10 years old. Hall is professionally equipped to recognize trickery. After more than 25 years as a performing magician, he knows how to create and recognize illusions. He is experienced in researching the unexplained, from folklore and urban legend to fortune-telling, the pyramids, and other mysterious tales. His syndicated 1990s column, Magic and the Unknown, ran for six years in multiple papers. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, William J. Hall. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you here. I've been looking forward to this show. Last week, our show was all about heaven and hell. And, you know, that that's one book into Halloween. And, the, and then the other book into Halloween is the world's most haunted house. You grew up with this. What was that like? Uh, well, uh, I was 10 years old at the time and saw it on the news, and it was a big uh, a big uproar in, uh, in the community uh, because... It was local to where I was. Um, did you? I mean, did you find that scary? I mean, as a child, I would think, you know, hey, wow, this right here in town. You see this on the news. This is for real. What if it comes to my own bedroom? I mean, did you find that frightening? Um, I I found it more. Uh, you know, I was more curious and excited. Um, I was much more frightened when. My parents took me to see The Exorcist. Oh, my God, that was not a good decision. They made. <laughs> that would got me, too. Uh, yeah, I didn't sleep a wink that night. But this fascination, like, wow, you know, is, is this really true, Dad? And, you know, that kind of thing. And, of course, my dad said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> you 
because that's that was the, what everybody else said, you know, when they announced well, it. Well, you have to keep you safe anyway. I mean, even if it were true, I'd be, probably be telling my 10-year-old, yeah, you know, Santa Claus lives, but not bad guys. Right, right. Well, and, and of course, you know, from the public view of it, unless you're close enough to the details or really look at what happened, um, it's, you know, it's hard to tell, as a lot of things are when we see them through the news versus, you know, what really happens or the whole story. Okay, so you're 10 years old, this goes on, but then, hey, you know, you, you're going to grow up. And, uh, you know, this is, it's going to go away. It falls into the background. You somehow get involved in magic. I mean, it, it, give us that transition. Tell us a little bit about who you are, William, and how you got to the point where you decided to research, you know, ghost schools and uh, other hauntings. Oh, certainly. In, there's probably two sets of thinking when it comes to uh, magicians. I'm, uh, I would say many magicians like myself are, are curious people. Uh, by nature, and uh, you'll find many of them uh, completely closed-minded, many of them open-minded, and of course, you know, all along the spectrum. So um, I know we, and myself included, tend to think of uh, magicians more like uh, the amazing Randy, you know, more uh, completely closed-minded or not believing in anything. Um, That really, luckily, is not the case out there. and and I fit that. I was you know one of the curious uh, boys growing up with uh, in search of, and that's incredible. Those kind of shows there that dealt with the unexplained when I was growing up in the seventies, and uh, I was always very curious about this, and and tended to look into things uh, later on as I get older, as a teenager and whatnot. I would look as far as I could into things. So if I had a book on UFOs and there was a document in it, you know, a friend would say, oh, well, that, that's that got to be fake. And, and I would say, well, let me order it. You know, there, there's a way to find out. I'll order it directly from the government. We'll see what I get, and then I'll compare it to what the book says, and, you know, we, we can make our own judgment, you know. So right. I always tried to get as close as I could to the, the original sources because I was fascinated um buy this kind of stuff. Even things that were urban legends that you couldn't really, you know, verify, it was still all fascinating to me. And uh, then I wrote a newspaper column, Magic in the Unknown, in the 90s, and uh, which uh, got me into investigating all sorts of different things. But I never really hit on the Lindley Street story. It, it, it must have been forgotten from my mind temporarily as, uh, as those things will happen until I was having coffee, and one of the uh, Facebook posts uh, said, does anybody remember the haunted house on Lindley Street? It was one of the community pages, uh, you know, for Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me, I never really looked into that. So I started looking at the newspapers um, and what they said. Of course, online, thank goodness, being uh, much easier than years ago, I didn't even have to yeah. leave my seat. And after about looking at about 50 of these stories from you know around the the country i i was certainly convinced that something happened there and definitely was worthy of uh, looking into and that's kind of how i how i got there but i uh you know houdini of course like most magicians was one of my idols and he always was very uh he was very open-minded and really looked for these kinds of things even though he never found it because i believe the way he looked for it of course led him to a lot of the 
you know, more of the performers and, you know, the things. Yeah, the mediums and the. We have a hard break coming up. Uh, When we come back, um, you know, I'm going to ask you uh, why you wrote this book. Was it just the curiosity that. that ignited that you you just covered with us, or was there a deeper meaning? We're speaking with William Hall about his work and book, The World's Most Haunted House. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. That's worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. Inner talk works by priming how you talk to yourself, and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals, anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with William Hall about his work and book, The World's Most Haunted House. Now, we ask our guests for up to three songs, songs that have some special significance to them. Music does elicit memories and call upon deep emotional sentiments in many, many ways. Our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. So now we just played Sometime in the Morning, sung by the Monkees. Why is this one special to you, William, and how does it tell us about whom you are? Oh, wow, great question. You know, I forgot about this till I heard the song. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that song is, you know, I'm a hopeless romantic, and that song just seems to really uh, paint an image of, uh, you know, some of the, some of the good times when, uh, when you're, you know, you're in love. 
and um and, and I always liked the monkeys because they were you know they started as a, a TV show and then became a real band because they did have you know some r- real talent there um and they were righteous for it you know they they lost a lot of money by uh doing what was true to them so the combination of uh uh them is uh, doing this song and you know the song itself and what it means um you know to me i just thought that was a really uh a, a unique thing that they did uh being so young and they could have made a lot more money and lasted more years if they um just told the party line and did as they were told uh and instead uh you know they did what was right because uh they wanted to to be true to themselves and uh, for people to know that. So anyhow, that's a long-winded story, but that's so. So it's attached to your first love or a love, and it has a secondary meaning. And I would assume that that is something you know that is an ethos you'd like to live up to yourself. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Before the break, I told you I was going to ask you about why you wrote a book. I mean, I can understand you investigating it. I mean, it was down the street, and Daddy said it didn't really happen, and you read all these newspapers. Uh, what was the reason? Did you just want to share this with everyone, or did you want everybody to know that evil exists? or What, what was the message? Well, what happened was uh, after I read that on Facebook, and that was about two years ago, uh, and looked up the newspapers, um, my curiosity, I wanted to know more. I didn't know what I would find. I didn't even know if there was, you know, a book at that time, because, of course, I didn't know what I would find. So uh, the next step was I wrote down everybody's name from the newspaper, all the police officers, the priests, the reporters, you know, every name that was mentioned, and started, uh, you know, finding them. Many, of course, were no longer with us, and uh, and some were. And I ended up uh, uh, getting a hold of Boyce Beatty, who was the lead investigator that um, did uh, a number of interviews after it was all over to try to help the family and scientifically document, uh, you know, this uh, uh, this case. And um, I called Boyce. He was 81 years old now, living in the same town that he lived in the 1970s, and uh I told him that uh, I had talked to retired police officer Joe Tomek, who was one of the first to arrive on the scene, and he mentioned uh, that uh, he was forced to be interviewed, and there was lots of these interviews and you know lots of data and a whole bunch of stuff. And I asked Boyce if he knew about it, and he says, yes, that was us. And I said, do you have access to these, you know, these interviews and stuff? And he said, I think so. They're in a box in my basement. So... Hmm. You know, that's how it started. And once I got 22 cassettes and an eight-hour reel-to-reel from the Bridgeport Police Department and started listening to them, and, you know, it was like going back in time. It, you know, it was fascinating. And, um, you know, it took me about 20 hours before I really knew what I had. I had to figure out, you know, do I have a real event and, you know, what actually happened, et cetera. And so I had to listen to a number of uh, people to get to that point. And uh, then it was just, wow, this is a heck of a story. It's uh, something that happened, you know, in where I grew up, and nobody really knew the details of the event. And it was documented just so well, and it was so public, it literally went around the world, that I felt, uh, 
between all of that and now having the uh, the interviews and the whole story, uh, that it was a, definitely a story worth uh, being told and sharing. So that's it is a story up. worth being told. There's no question about it. It's a great book. And one of the things I like so much about the book is that you actually took the time to interview some of these people. Uh, but it reads like a... You know, it reads like a novel. It could be, uh, they could make a movie out of this one really easy, just kind of following your book. So, you know, it's a, it's a good book to cuddle up to, um, on a scary night, but it's also, you know, as a mystery, it's also a, a, a very interesting factual read. Let's do this. Let's get some definitions out of the way and then let's start talking about what actually took place. What, you know, what makes a poltergeist different than a ghost? Okay, of course, what these two things are is, you know, a matter of a lot of theories, but I'd like to, uh, I think the question could be answered well by, you know, what are the indicators and behaviors? Um, And, you know, with the poltergeist, uh, there is a teen or preteen that's having some sort of uh, drama or trauma, and of course there's, you know, what teen isn't having that, but this is... Um, that's one ingredient, and it's usually uh, usually a more a more serious kind of uh, trouble. But it's uh, not always that way. In our case, it was uh, a little girl who was uh, an adopted uh, child from Ontario, Canada. So she was the youngest of nine children. She was adopted, and uh, we had uh, somebody extremely shy, frustrated. Uh, picked on, alienated, and uh, kind of smothered. So it, it was a lot of tension and things building up. And uh, in the right conditions, uh, that's where you get a poltergeist. Now, there's different theories as to what a poltergeist is, uh, but uh, from my, at least from the Lindley Street case and from actually some of the others I investigated, uh, there clearly were entities involved. Um but I also think it's true that uh, it centers around, you know, one or one or two, you know, people in the family. And they say with, I'm Go sorry, ahead. I don't want to. No, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, they say in these kind of what I would call parasite uh, uh, attacks, uh, whether it's a poltergeist or not, it uh, generally you always look for what's going on in the family because that's usually how it exploded into the activity and that'll also be the key to how how you would end it uh, and that certainly isn't true for all kinds of hauntings as as you mentioned right now one of the things that i think the literature makes clear that differentiates the poltergeist and i want to ask you about that very directly is that um you know the manifestations by them are hostile they are aggressive they are uh, you know, they throw around furniture. Uh, they've been claimed to be capable of pinching, biting, hitting, tripping, and and in the instance, and I'm sure you heard the, the setup piece, uh, even raping. Uh, do you think that uh, that it's necessary for them to have someone that, like this uh, 10-year-old girl, 10, 11-year-old girl at uh, at the uh, Lindley Street uh, location? For them to get the energy or whatever it is to to carry out these kinds of manifestations, 
Um, I I do. I believe that, uh, and that's why, you know, I, I use the term parasite. I mean, I do believe they feed on, uh, you know, anger, um, perhaps, you know, anxiety, fear, and some of those other, uh, you know, negative emotions, or, you know, it can be negative, but, uh, and and they they definitely work to push buttons too to keep that kind of turmoil in play uh because without it uh you know they go away now i i do have um you know a number of thoughts you know i'm not quite sure they're evil you know maybe in the case of you know rape of course you can you that you know that could be something com- completely different kind of entity or whatever you know mm-hmm. but um you know, in some of these other circumstances, I'm not quite sure uh, they certainly could be evil or very negative, or they could be more neutral, and there may be a lot going on that we don't quite uh, understand. Um, I know with some of the objects uh, going around, uh, I separate into two piles, kind of what I would call um, unintentional, meaning maybe not caused by entities at all, but caused by, uh, you know, the energy going on, regardless of you know, w- what theory is to where that energy comes from, uh, that, you know, when the refrigerator floats, it's not an entity making it float. It's that uh, either portal, other dimension, you know, whatever, whatever you know, belief or theory uh, that that energy is causing it, and it may not be a an intentional act, whereas, you know, picking up the little girl, throwing her across the room, scratches, and, you know, those kinds of things that you mentioned, would certainly point to to more uh, more of an intentional act, more negative acts, uh, and even some of them could be misinterpreted. I'm not saying they are, but you know, when we say pick up and throw the girl across the room, we don't know if that's some sort of weird energy reaction or if it's an intentional act. Um, I mean, I would guess it's an intentional act, but I try to really question even my own thoughts and beliefs constantly about this because there's just so much we don't know. Right. I, I, it would it seem to me, William, and you correct me, I mean, you, you've been right there, uh, that even if um, it was an unintentional act, it would have to be precipitated by some sort of hostile response. And now, you know, and I can imagine, you know, maybe the poltergeist has a hostile response or, you know, is feeding on this something is said, something is felt by this little girl, and, you know, they have the thought, and that produces the energy, but it still would rest or arise out of basically what we could think of as, as an anger or hostile uh, emotion. And it, yes or no? Uh, yes, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I I think that definitely is a crucial uh, ingredient to this, uh, to you know, to the poltergeist. So let me ask you this, just because we did a show last week on heaven and hell, and heaven and hell is, uh, believe it or not, the the whole idea is rather controversial in many quarters. Uh, I, I'm not arguing for either, but it would appear to me that based on recent research, uh, as well as all of this, you know, all of the data that's available from as long as we have recorded history, there seems to be an, a side, a dark side, we shall say, because it's certainly not loving, uh, that contains within it uh, entities, spirits, what whatever label you want to give it, that for all intent and purposes, at the very least, are confused, and at 
you know, the genuine extreme or just evil. Uh, do you find that to make sense to have merit uh, based on your investigations? Uh, the entities or, or the heaven and hell? Not the heaven and hell, the good and the bad, the good guys and the bad guys on the other side. I guess that's the best way to say it. I got Entity, you. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think it's an entire spectrum. Uh, you know, there's been cases where it's more uh, neutral, and there's been cases, like you said, uh, you know, more confused. And then there's, of course, cases where uh, it definitely uh, appears to be, you know, we don't know if they're negative all the time, but certainly acting uh, negative and, and could be classified, you know, in the, in the evil category. I'm, I'm a bit careful when using the word evil because, um, you know, for example, Lindley Street, I mean, three guys tried to burn the house down while the family was in it. So, you know, are they evil? And I, I would I would say they're not evil. I would say they're scared and confused. But to, you know, another to an outsider not aware of the human species, that certainly would look like they were evil. You know what I mean? So I'm I'm kind of careful with the words evil because that, that yeah. kind of connotates that they're evil all the time. And, you know, we don't really know a lot about that. We don't know if they come through because they want to or if they're kind of forced there, um, you know, because of this uh, happening. Not that they don't want to feed on that, but, you know, we really don't know a lot about the motivations and the context in which they appear. Uh, but, you know, what you're saying, I definitely agree with, that there's uh, appears at least by their actions. We don't know if they're in totality negative or neutral or positive, but uh, uh, definitely we have, uh, you know, the spectrum of... Uh, you know, reactions from these things. You know, some are very good. Uh, you know, case I'm working on now where, you know, money has actually come, not large amounts of money, but, you know, uh, somebody needs something at the store, they find they don't have the money, and they find money on their on their car seat. And, you know, it's ridiculous things, but kind of little, little helpful things. Uh, and then there's ones that are kind of neutral. You know, they're not really, you know, they're not what you'd call evil, but they're bizarre and might scare you at first but now it's just kind of a weird thing you know you know something is there but it's not causing any problems and then on the other hand you have uh you know the poltergeist and and other kinds of uh negative it could be very very negative of course but yes the uh, short answer is yes i completely agree with you <laughs> okay good let, let me you know there's no shortage of skeptics william who challenge the entire idea that we're discussing is just nonsense and rubbish. And I know you're familiar with the arguments of this nature. They generally insist on some form of fakery. So, you know, a two-part question, if you will. Are you familiar with the poltergeist claims that turned out to be fakes, any of them? And how do you go about ensuring that what you're reporting is genuine and not itself a fabrication, sir? Yes, uh, uh, very good uh, questions. Uh, number one, yes, uh, there are there are poltergeists. Usually, uh, the quote unquote fakes are either the children doing the actions, which are very quickly uh, they're very quickly exposed once you get an outsider, because children have a little easier time fooling their own parents, who are less likely to truly suspect or believe they could be doing some of these things. Uh, but once an outsider comes in, it you know 
takes less than a half hour. You don't need a magician or anything for that, and right. yeah, and it falls apart. Uh, or there's misinterpretation, uh, like a case of uh, moving objects and, and different things like that. Uh, when I say moving, it might be something moving across a table, nothing really you know violent. And sometimes that's caused by a new appliance that the you know, the person in the in the apartment above them has, and and that's causing it. And it's not anything paranormal. So you come across that. Um, outright fakes actually are rarer. Uh, I'm not saying. I mean, some people do some elaborate things, and and there's been some cases of that. But it is, it's rather rare because it's a lot of effort, and really there's not, uh, you know, there's not a lot of as much motivation as we would think. Um, I think there's the claim, you know, from a skeptical point of view that that happens a lot more than it does. I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's actually on the rarer side. It's more likely to be mental illness, uh, a misinterpretation of what's really happening that uh, that could be with technology, for example, you know, as I mentioned, or it may be, you know, parents being fooled by their child. I mean, there was a case where um, a paranormal investigator went in and the lady was finding scratches on her and stuff, and she was actually self-mutilating herself. It was mental illness. And she even had a witness, which was her daughter. And so, you know, these things could be very complex. And, and oftentimes, uh, as William, as Bill Roll used to say, you know, uh, myself, I'm more the team leader. I have to bring in a series of other experts, you know, psychiatrists, a magician, uh, you know, um, to really know what's what's going on there. So, um, and then this, to the second part of the question, um, yeah, it, you know, if a if a painting comes off the wall or something, I mean, I could I can do that. I can make a rocking chair rock by itself, and you'd never find out how. And um, but when it comes to, uh, you really have to look at the context and the totality of the evidence because. For example, a refrigerator floating, sure, that could be done, but, you know, you either need hydraulics or a fake refrigerator, you know. <laughs> and then if things happening in every room and, you know, when you look at it in other, you know, when you forget just, you know, a picture falling off the wall and, you know, a skeptic would say, well, you know, somebody threw it or somebody, but, you know, yeah, that's, we got to look at the context of it, obviously, you know, uh, and it's never quite as simple as, as what they make it out to. Like most things that we see, you know, we see uh, somebody getting a huge sum of money in a court case and we're like, oh, they're taking advantage. You know, you don't you don't really know the details a lot of times. And if you knew the details and you'd be like, wow, they deserve that. You know, <laughs> not always because, you know, our, our court system, of course, is far from perfect. But I mean, uh, you know, you really have to look at the context. So, um, you know, to any any skeptic, and, I, and I've said this, uh, uh, I have yet to come across anyone who has actually been in that house when the phenomena was happening uh, that said it was a hoax. I mean, not, there wasn't one. There was an officer I actually ran into uh, when I was given a lecture who said it was a hoax. Uh, he went in the house afterwards, never was there when it happened, and uh, and he didn't have any facts to back it up. It was simply a proclamation of belief. And I said, you're, you know, you're certainly entitled to your opinion, but uh, let's do a scientific approach. You know, come to me with facts because I've, you know, I've, I've piled over a hundred witnesses that say otherwise. 
and you're making guesses at what you think happened, uh, but the details don't uh, don't equal what you're saying. You know, I mean, you say the girl pushed herself back in the chair, but you weren't there, and the witnesses say her her feet weren't on the ground and her hands were on her lap. So, you know, and um, so again, uh, that's a long-winded answer, but I think really uh, context and totality of the evidence uh, really is. Around yeah, here you know, we and, like the long-winded answers, William. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and, and skeptics you, never want to look at details. You know, as Stanton Friedman says, "Don't bother me with the with the facts," or you know, my mind's made up. You know, right. Well, and I think what often happens, you correct me, but uh, you know, people will get online or they'll read about something like Amityville. There's another famous one, and there are some people that say this. You know skeptics that say it just simply didn't happen. Now, I don't know if it happened or it didn't, but I can read what the skeptics use to criticize it, and and they can seem very convincing. And so then I can walk away, and I can become a critic of it myself, because all I have to do is quote what those skeptics said, and I seem like I'm I'm informed, you know. And, and the bottom line is, as you pointed out with this particular officer, they're not there. They don't witness it. They're relying on, you know, something that somebody else said and or their own way of leveraging an explanation for the events that took place. And they're actually using the very same principles that they would fault believers for using because right. they're, just, you know, and they're, they're not using facts. They're using opinions and, you know, they weren't there and, you know, and, if we used that to try to justify a case was real, they'd be all over you. That's right. And well, so, we've got another break. And when we get back from the break, I want to get into the specificity of this haunting, the, the witnesses, what happened, you know, the psychology of the environment, et cetera. Let's, let's, let's flesh that all out. If you would like to know more about William Hall and his work, or the book, The World's Most Haunted House, you can do so by visiting worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. We have a video for you during the break of the most haunted places in the world. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. And it's too bad it's not Halloween, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, but the fact is magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InnerTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InnerTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to InnerTalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with William Hall about his work and book, The World's Most Haunted House. Now, William, we just played your second musical choice, Live Forever by Oasis. So please tell us, what's up with this one? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really love that song because it, uh, you know, it's basically expressing, uh, you know, how life could be complex and, uh, and you know you really want to make the best of it and uh, i really like that line um uh you know we 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 may not be all the things that we want to be now is not the time to cry now's the time to find out why you know and it, it's about introspection and really examining um yourself and um and using that to to go into the future by by looking at uh you know, understanding why you're where you are or why you're not where you think you ought to be. and um, So does that line link to a real-life event? I mean, you know, one of the things we like to do <laughs> yeah, around here is... Uh, yeah, probably my whole life. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's... And a lot of it's coming to terms with, uh, um, you know, with decisions that, that you made. And, uh, and, you know, I'm in a good spot now where, you know, where, where I have, and luckily I don't have you know that many. Uh, yeah, you know, I've had a I've had a good, happy life in my mind for the most part. So, um, but yeah, I, I hopefully that uh, sounded somewhat coherent and clear. But <laughs> I relate. All right, let's let's do this as promised in the break. Let's talk about the house. Uh, tell us about the history of the house on Lindley Street, and I mean by that, you know, how many owners had lived there before this. Uh, uh, this family was there. I mean, was it, you know, on an old burial ground? Was there anything unique about this uh, this home um, prior to the hauntings with uh, with the family involved? Well, there was no uh, there was no evidence of anything paranormal before or after the family. Um, however. 
house itself and and Bridgeport itself is is loaded with kind of the uh, um, the right ingredients for this kind of thing to happen uh, when you add the the ingredient of the family situation as we discussed earlier. Uh, the house is in in Bridgeport, which is known for uh, its uh, high uh, high water tables, sandy soils, which are which we find are, are pretty common in these kind of cases. Uh, as uh, some potential indicators uh, or conductors of electromagnetic energy. Uh, there was an underground stream uh, that ran under the house, and we often find a water source nearby, you know, lake or river or something like that. Uh, in fact, it was funny, a, a paranormal uh, investigator, for lack of a better word, I don't necessarily like that term because he does a lot more than investigate, but... Uh, he's helped a lot of families, but I remember he was quite shocked uh, because I failed to mention the underground spring when I was talking to him about Lindley Street. And he, had, and, and he said he was very concerned because he thought uh, his whole theory was thrown out the window because he didn't see a water source. And then I told him there was an underground spring, and he's like, oh, jeez. So, uh, so that's another thing. Um, and, and there was a lot of power lines around the house, and you know, sometimes, and you, you may know this too. Sometimes houses that are under power lines uh, find that that's a. Uh, it doesn't mean you're going to have paranormal activity. None of these things do, but certainly it makes it uh, have part of the right conditions for that sort of thing to occur. So that I think is where the house comes in. Um, you know, it's funny, but the very first boss I ever ha- had, uh, his uh, parents owned the house, and he grew up in that house. Um, so, but nothing happened uh, before or after. This certainly was focused on the family as that uh, that ingredient. Uh, I'm not surprised that nothing happened before or after, but I probably wouldn't be shocked if something did either because of those other, you know, conditions around the house. Or something yet happens in the future. But let's let's flesh out a little bit. Let's unpack this idea of electromagnetic uh, conductivity. I suppose that's what we would use. Uh, yeah. Between the, the availability of water, whether it's the underground or river, as you say, or, or whatnot, and uh, the power lines, etc., that that tends to suggest that you believe that whatever takes place, like uh, the levitation of this refrigerator, is electromagnetic in its nature. Does it also, you know, uh, explain why some of the the video work is whited out or? Or what's your take on all of that? Um, yeah, I think that very well could be due to, um, uh, you know, the, those uh, energies, uh, which I think is why people often get uh, feel uh, it hard to breathe or heaviness in certain areas. Uh, I think that has to do a lot with uh, the difference in uh, in energies. Um, and, and I don't mean to say, and of course I'm no expert on, is it all electromagnetic? I mean, that's one part of it. I'm sure there's other things that, uh, that, that, we're, that we don't know or may not have found out yet, uh, like maybe it's the portal itself or, you know, dimension or parallel world or, you know, again, using terms like, as you say, whatever your, whatever your term or belief is, uh, from the source, there certainly could be, uh, other things to it, but I think, uh, uh, it's funny because I asked a few uh, physicists about um, 
uh, you know, didn't tell them it was a paranormal question. They and they had no idea. And I just said, you know, if a refrigerator floated, what, you know, what would kind of make that happen? What would come to your mind? And you know, they all said electromagnetic energy. So, uh, so I thought that was interesting. Pro- probably would be a common and easy answer. But me, I'm no science, you know, buff. I, I avoid it physics. <laughs> You know? <laughs> but uh, but well, they uh, actually yeah. are using electromagnetics for levitating um, things today. So I, I mean, there's nothing inconsistent exactly, about yeah. that. Uh, all right, let's do this. After all your work, you've got a theory, and I think I could kind of put that together. You know, part of it is the environment, and part of it were the inhabitants. Uh, flesh out, if you will, for us. The story of this young girl, the adopted girl, and, and, and her emotional state, and, and, and your theory as to why the haunting, when the haunting took place, and when it ended. Okay, certainly. Um, Laura and uh, Jerry, the parents, adopted uh, Marcia after their young uh, biological son died at age six. He had cerebral palsy, couldn't walk or talk, couldn't do anything himself. He was a special needs child. And they adopted uh, Marcy from Ontario, Canada. She was the youngest uh, child out of uh, in a family of nine. Um, they told her she was tied to a chair, which of course implies abuse, but we don't have a lot of information on you know the prior family or context or you know anything like that due to the way, you know, adoptions uh, were right. and are. And um, so she was very, uh, she was very, very shy and uh, introverted, didn't talk, much, you know, didn't really have any uh, friends. Uh, but she was getting along okay at St. Patrick's School, and then Jerry's hours got cut down. She got transferred to a public school that was uh, that was rougher, you know, in downtown Bridgeport. And uh, uh, they made fun of her because she was a, Five Nations Indian, so her olive skin didn't really match the Italian and African American, uh, you know, makeup of the neighborhood. And uh, of course, add to that the fact that you don't really talk, and you'll be, you know, that's a perfect formula for bullying, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she was picked on uh, for uh, for about a uh, about a year. Um, but shortly after they adopted her, just the that's when there was some very small things happening uh like jerry would see the door move a little or you know the keys were out of place or you know thought i pushed in that chair and now it's out uh almost like you know after a while he thought he's you know going crazy but um so it was like in a simmering mode and um and uh, in 1971 in november there were uh banging sounds on the inside and outside of the walls. They didn't know what was causing them, and nobody could really figure it out, the police and firemen, etc. And that happened in 72 also, and they uh, recorded it with the help of uh, their police officer neighbor across the street, said, hey, let's record these uh, sounds. Maybe they can figure out what they are. And they recorded them and couldn't figure them out, and it happened in 73 also. But in 74, that's when, uh, from 73 to 74 is when Marcy was, uh, you know, in that public school and being picked on. And then she ended up being uh, beat up by a child in the cafeteria. And now she found herself 
at home in uh, in a soft body brace, uh, recuperating and being uh, tutored. And uh, she was in this tiny home, a very, very tiny home, 738 square feet, so a little bungalow. Mm-hmm. And uh, the parents, especially the mother, um, very overprotective. Uh, everything, you know, she refers to it, you know, we can't let Marcy cross the street, she may die. You know, we can't let her go here, she may die. Because uh, they really developed an unhealthy parenting style, uh, which, you know, fueled by losing their biological son, sure. who was only six. So all these things, there was six weeks there, she was stuck at home in this tiny house with the mother, mostly because, you know, Jerry was at work. And um, it's after that period of time, after those six weeks, that this thing finally uh, exploded. They uh, they went to uh, New York to see uh, Jerry's brother, and, um, and they came back and Jerry noticed that there was a uh, Marcy's TV was off the shelf and on the bed and he puts it back and it falls down again and uh, so he disconnects it not really knowing what's going on and he's bringing in the groceries and uh, uh, to Laura in the kitchen who's putting things away and making supper and the table picks up and uh, flips and throws groceries all over the place, and this very heavy standalone uh, console TV comes down on her on her foot, and uh, she of course screams, and Jerry runs in there, and all sorts of other things start happening with uh, you know dishes flying and and um, uh, you know crazy things. So they get Marcy who's napping, you know, out of the car after the after it settles down, because then it settles down, they clean up and. Uh, they end up really not knowing too much well, no, what hold, to do. Hold or who... a second. I don't want to interrupt you, but that, I think that's an important <laughs> point. Marcy is in the car when this is happening. Yeah, she's sleeping right. in the car. Because some, I mean, originally the chief of police at a point said that the girl was faking it all, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's an important point that that's pretty hard to fake that when the girl's in the car. Yeah, so anyway, well, go on. Like, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I. You, no, no, ahead. please. Yeah, uh, no, 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 no. Like, I, uh, tell a story. One of my favorite it. quotes from Jerry is, uh, you know, is Marcy can't move a refrigerator. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and right. and uh, another favorite one is, uh, it's not Marcy because when I'm home alone in the house, things are happening, and I know I'm not doing it. So <laughs> that was that was another favorite quote, but. Right. Uh, so go on. So, so things calm down. They're up till about three in the morning, and decide to go to bed. And and some people say, why don't they run out? This, that. I mean, they really, you know, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't even believe in the supernatural. So they really, I think, were just trying to get a um, a level set on, you know, what what this was. And luckily, things did calm down. And uh, then when Jerry wakes up. He starts his new normal, which is to survey the house before anybody else gets up, and he finds the you know, the kitchen table flips again, and the refrigerator's in front of the door, and he's and then he sees the reclining chairs. There's three of them, three single reclining chairs, and they're opening and closing by themselves. So he says, "That's it." So he gets he gets his family and takes them on the porch, and they get the attention of. Uh, uh, the uh, daughter of the police officer from across the street, and that's when he comes over. 
and uh, when uh, when he comes over, he tells them to stay on the porch and goes inside because he thinks, you know, somebody came in and ransacked the place. Right. And then he sees the refrigerator and TV do stuff, and he sees the chairs opening and closing, and and they're still on the porch, and he he doesn't know what to do, so he calls her back up, and they come, they don't know what to do, and they're seeing all this different phenomena and and they end up calling the fire department fire department shows up you know and they check it out and say well we don't know what you want from us there's you know there's nothing wrong here that we can see other than things are happening that shouldn't be and uh one of the firemen calls the uh, chaplain for the fire department chaplain and says father uh you know i haven't been drinking but this is what's going on here and uh so then the priest shows up and says there's, and he has trouble breathing, says there's something evil here. And um, and then a neighbor calls Ed and Lorraine Warren, and uh, they come over with another priest, Father Charbonneau and Paulino, the seminarian. So meanwhile, you have all these people starting to come and, you know, neighbors getting word of it and uh, police talking about it because they're in and out. And, you know, gradually this crowd is uh, starting to form. Uh, you know, until later that day when the Associated Press and Rudders gets uh, gets word of it, and then uh, the thing just starts exploding, uh, you know, across the United States, uh, and pretty quickly. So even without social media, it doesn't take that long <laughs> when it's big right. news. <laughs> right. So how long did this go on now, William? Well, this was, uh, you know, the, the height of the activity was... Um, Sunday and Monday. Now, for the family, of course, and behind the scenes, it uh, it's far more than that, right? Because uh, it continues. But to the public eye, it was those two days because on Tuesday, that's when um, the superintendent and captain and inspector of the police department announced that it's a hoax, um, and most people go home. So it did take care of the uh, the crowd control because they had over two thousand people outside the house up and down the street, uh, they ended up barricading the road for the next day. But even still, I mean, traffic was backed up over a mile in all directions. And it was very expensive and very worrisome for the, you know, for the Bridgeport Police Department. It was just, you know, you know how people are. So it was crazy. They had bugs and paddy wagons and, you know, it was a bad situation. And they, the inspector who was handed the case late in the game was told, you know, you got to shut this down because the superintendent was, you know, beside himself. He wanted his uh, city back. So, is so. it your your thinking or your take on this, uh, or maybe you even know for a fact because you've spoken to him that the reason they called hoax was to dispense with the crowd and and the and the problems? Yes, I, I mean the the inspector. The inspector, the captain, and the superintendent, uh, all behind the scenes, um, did say that. Um, what what happened? It actually evolved. It was it was a, a great opportunity that the inspector was given because he was wrestling with what do we do. And uh, Tuesday morning, an officer goes in there um, and sees uh, Marcy. Uh, is laying on the carpet and she kicks the TV and it spins around and and he basically gives her a gotcha smile and and uh, then 
from there it explodes into, oh, you were pretending the cat could talk because there was this whole uh, issue uh, witnesses saying the cat talked, which the cat didn't talk. There was audio phenomena that was attributed to the cat. But, you know, and uh, so she did pretend to make her cat talk because she didn't have many friends. And, you know, nobody was fooled by it. But so after those two things, then it became, you know, she did everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody cared about comparing details because uh, when the officer called it in, I mean, the inspector knew it was real, but now he has this handed to him. Uh, here's an out and a way to close it. And he took right. it and he told, uh, he told investigator Jerry Sulfin, he said, uh, Inspector Clark said, you know, I'm really sorry, Jerry. Um, I did the best I could with what I had. I, You know, I didn't want to blame it on Marcy, but it seemed like, you know, the only way. Uh, I mean, the crowds were just very dangerous. I mean, you know, and rightfully so, because three tried to burn the house down while they were in it. So, um, you know, they knew they really had to get, you know, it it just was a situation that couldn't continue. So when this was handed to to him, he saw it as the perfect opportunity. It would be interesting to know what they would have done if uh, they didn't have that opportunity. You know, would they have... You know, you know what would they have done? Make a story or do nothing, or you know, because the crowd kept the longer it goes without an answer, the crowd just keeps growing. You know, right? Now I assume the three that were intent on burning the home down, they were just convinced that it was a, a source of evil, and the evil needed to be destroyed. Right, right. Even if you know, innocent and, humans could go right. with it. Yeah, yeah but know, yeah, and they were arrested. They were, uh, you know, they were found uh, the same time and luckily the fire you know didn't get big uh, it was found uh, very soon after it started so yeah it's a mentality of the witch hunters but now did the exactly. phenomena stop uh, after it was uh, you know called out to be a hoax did it then stop or did it go on but you know we didn't tell the world right the the second one uh, the phenomena continued uh, and the Bridgeport Police Department not only mandated that uh, their officers be interviewed um, by the paranormal investigators to help the family, so they, you know, they did want to help the family. Uh, but the Bridgeport Police, even though they announced publicly this is a hoax, and you know, which they said, you know, this means, you know, we're not coming here anymore. You know what I mean? I mean, we'll do crowd control if it's needed because that has nothing to do with that. But we're not going in the house because it's a hoax, you know. Um, and uh, but they continued to provide police protection to the family when they requested it. Um, so I mean, they you know they knew it wasn't a hoax. You wouldn't go pro- provide the you know the family that protection inside, you know, from their own daughter, you know. <laughs> so. So they did do the right thing behind the scenes. Uh, in fact, um, you know, the inspector uh, told the Jerry Sulfin, who was the, the guy from Duke University who was helping with the investigation, he said, uh, look, you know, I'll do whatever you want. We'll set up a conference room. If the guys are on the road, I'll call them in. You know, you enter whoever you want to be to have interviewed. I'll make sure they're here. You know, I'll set up this conference room for you and everything. I'll mandate that they be interviewed. All I ask is let's do it behind the scenes. Let's keep it quiet. Let's keep the newspapers out of it. And, you know, we'll help the family. You'll get the information you need. So uh, 
so that's how it came about. Now, the phenomenon did continue uh, throughout the holidays, um, actually to a point where right. Jerry I'm actually... I'm going to ask you to hold it there, William. We've got another break. I don't want the computer to kick us out. When we come oh, yeah. back, when we come back, pick it up right where you are. Thank you for tuning in today, all of you out there. We hope you're enjoying the show with our guest, William Hall, and our discussion about his work and book, The World's Most Haunted House. We'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Hi, I'm Elton Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio right here on KRSE, BeyondTheOrdinary.net radio. I'm so glad you could join me as I tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter to all of us. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by friending me on Facebook. Now, back to the show. It's getting better all the time. I used to get mad at my school. The teachers who taught me were cool. And welcome back. We hope you're enjoying the show. We're speaking with William Hall about his work and book, The World's Most Haunted House. It's a great read. If you're enjoying this interview, I tell you, turn the lights down and read the book some evening. It's a great read. You can learn more about him and his work by visiting worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. In this half hour, we'll take your call. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. Now, William, we just played Getting Better by the Beatles. So, all right, what's the deal on this one? William? I've always been a big uh, uh, Beatles fan, and uh, Paul McCartney was always uh, so positive, um, and uh, and Lennon was funny and a bit negative. Uh, <laughs> you can tell he's the one who came up with uh, Can't Get Much Worse, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I like the message in the song. You know, things are getting better and getting better since you've been mine. Um, 
Uh, and that's about it. Nothing too deep uh, there, as far as I can tell. Just just a decent song, just a nice sound. Yeah, All great right. song. Nice I'll let you go on that. Normally I wouldn't, but I'll let you go on that one because I'm, I'm <laughs> more, interested, little, right? <laughs> yeah, more interested in getting back to the haunted house story. You were telling us that the phenomena continued. You want to pick it up? Yes. Uh, it uh, continued uh, throughout uh, the holidays. This was late November when it happened, and it continued into December. And, uh, matter of fact, uh, one scary, uh, to me, one of the most jarring things, it was kind of creepy, is uh, uh, the family comes home from uh, being out, and maybe even Christmas shopping, and uh, they come in, and, and, of course, Jerry goes in first, because that's his his M.O., he always steps into the house first. But right. um, The protector. Uh the ornaments are all off the tree and sitting underneath in a, a little neat pile. Uh, and that was pretty jarring to uh, uh, Jerry, I think, was more uh, more anxious and upset. And, and Laura and Marcy cried and, you know, hugged each other. And it's it just kind of a very jarring kind of thing. And... Um, and then they found uh, a Madonna statue in the kitchen that was down, and uh, the thumbs were missing. But uh, the family described it like it didn't look like they were just, you know, it didn't look like they just broke from the fall. Uh, they were gone, and they, they never found them, the thumbs. It was just a weird, and that, of course, is very jarring, to, you know, to the family, as, as you'd imagine. And, what am I uh, missing? Why the thumbs? Is there some symbology there? Or? Um, I don't. You know, the only thing I can uh, personally, the only thing that I can think of is that they really did break off. Just, just my, you know, my opinion. Maybe they couldn't find them, but they broke off. But you know, who knows? I mean, you know, this yeah. phenomenon is weird. It certainly could be something else. But a lot of times when they have, uh, you know, Mary's hands together with rosaries or whatever. Um, I'm thinking that some of the statues may have the thumbs kind of sticking out. So, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm just guessing because I don't have a picture of the, or I should say hypothesizing because I don't have a picture of right. the statue. But, uh, um, you know, that's my guess. But then again, they said they couldn't find them. And I think they were looking for the thumbs uh, for two reasons. Number one, Jerry could have glued them on. But I think it, it, it just kind of freaked them out, and they really wanted to find them. Right. And and the fact that they couldn't, you know, kind of made the experience even more jarring. But uh, did, did the family ever call in an exorcist? I mean, you know. Well, if, when Father Doyle, the first priest that was called by the fire department, when he came in there, uh, he said he was going to try to get uh, an exorcism done, and that's what um, Father Charbonneau, who later came with the warrant, said too. Uh, but later on, as they, uh, you know, get more into the poltergeist situation, uh, I, I I think the Warrens thought it would help, and, and maybe the priest did too, but uh, we certainly knew that, uh, you know, they, they knew pretty soon that there's no way the church was going to prove anything, especially with how public this thing got. Um, but uh, but both priests were very supportive of the family um 
well, Father Doyle is very supportive behind the scenes. He towed the party line in public, and Father Charbonneau, well, nobody knows how he remained a priest, because he, he would just tell anybody uh, uh, about it, and so he must have been in a lot of trouble. But uh, he managed to get around it, so I guess it all depends on who you report to. But uh, uh, but they were both, uh, They, you know, I hear these stories about how, especially in those days, or even now, uh, that a lot of times the priests uh, aren't of much help, uh, but uh, you know they were simply wonderful in this case. You know I heard different stories, but uh, Lindley Street, um, they were very helpful and supportive. And, and uh, okay, you, you've described law enforcement, fire department, and you know the clerics as being very helpful. But when the superintendent comes out and says this is a fraud, it's a hoax, this little girl's been pulling all these games. How did the town respond? Um, it, and that's a good question. I think uh, I think they responded the way their opinions already were. In other words, those who believed it was real before still believed it was real, and those who cried hoax from the beginning, you know, said, "Aha! I told you." <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah, and but, then I'm sure that there was a, a how, bit of a middle in there. Is- and, how did that impact Marcy? I mean, did she go back to school? or um, She did end up going back to school with Father Doyle's help, but she didn't go back to read school. Of course, the parents said there's no way she's going back to that school after being beat up like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, Father Doyle negotiated a, some help from the school district and uh, you know, vouched for the family that this phenomenon was real. And that uh, you know Marcy wasn't at fault, etc. And uh, they got to Marcy back in the St. Patrick School, where she was happy. She was happy there beforehand. She was still shy and everything, but uh, they were just supportive of her. You know, they didn't tolerate the bullying and that kind of thing. It wasn't a rough public school like you know uh, Reed was at the time. And uh, once she got back to St. Patrick School and got back into her school routine. And, uh, you know, was happy. And uh, that, of course, made the family, uh, you know, happier. And uh, as that peace was restored, these parasites, as, you know, we call them, you know, they had nothing to feed on and the phenomena, you know, fizzled out. And uh, that was in 1975. And, uh, and the Goodins, uh, the, you know, the family gave one uh, last interview just to accomplish two things, to say, hey, we're not crazy. And number two, you know, Marcy didn't do it. And then they never spoke about it publicly for the rest of their lives. Did you ever, I mean, did you have the opportunity to interview Marcia? She would have been about your age, wouldn't she have been, William? Uh, Yeah, exactly uh, my age. Um, That's the only thing I don't want to do. It's kind of a spoiler alert, so I don't want to... Uh, give that I've gotten in trouble for giving that away, so I'll let people discover that. That is, you know, that is in the book for uh, Marcy and that kind of thing. All right, that's um, a good way to answer. I'll leave it like that because you know it is a great read, and I would like everybody to read the book as well. So, you know, yeah, that's because uh, uh, I know that's kind of a spoiler. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. All right, let me let me ask you this though: uh, when you were all said and done. <clears throat> And, and you looked at everything. Um, were you able to find any physical evidence? I mean, you had tape recordings, cassettes, I assume, uh, et cetera. Yeah. Was there anything 
of the phenomena that was actually captured, you know, that gave you, here it is, the physical evidence, or is it all eyewitness? Um, most of it was eyewitness. I wouldn't be surprised if there's not a photo out there, but then again, if there's a photo of a chair falling over or something, you know, I'm not sure how convincing that would be, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, there was, during the interviews, there's two things on tape that I thought was kind of neat. I wouldn't say they would be you know, your definitive proof. I think the eyewitnesses are, are really, you know, where you get that from. But uh, an interesting thing is uh, when one of the bureaus moved and fell over by itself, uh, that was being recorded at the time, and there was kind of this uh, disturbance uh, in the tape for about 18 seconds, um, and that was uh, captured. Um, again, that's nothing I would come as a singular piece and say, look, this is real, you know, but it was an interesting thing that was captured. Uh, You know, the family weren't, um, you know, nobody really was, I mean, some of the, some of the media took some photos, but, uh, but even uh, the media that I interviewed, uh, John Sopko from the Bridgeport Post, for example, he went in the house and he, he saw dishes in a dish rack uh, start to move across and actually take a turn and then go really fast in, into Jerry and, you know, startle him. And, you know, he had the camera right around him, but he's like, you know, you couldn't capture it. And even if he did, of course, what would that really, you know, prove? You really would have needed, uh, you know, video for that. And, and TV was let in very, um, uh, you know, it was here and there. It depended on what was going on and the mood of the family because they were, um, you know, they wanted people to know they're not crazy, uh, but, you know, they never asked for the publicity. They actually never even called the police. It was uh, it was uh, their Bridgeport police officer, neighbor, and friend who called for backup, and the only people they called was uh, friends of theirs who uh, the wife ended up calling the police to as a result of their call. But uh, so all these other people, they didn't know who the Warrens were. Uh, they didn't call the Warrens in. Um, you know, they welcomed it in because everybody else didn't know what was going on. So they figured, why not? Um, but that's kind of the way it proceeded. So unfortunately, we don't have any, you know, video or, or anything like that. Geez, I could just imagine what we would have if it took place today, you know. Right. No kidding. But like I said, I wouldn't, there's some... Uh, I wouldn't doubt that there's some sort of uh, thing out there, you know, with that much in the crowd. Um, you know, uh, two pictures showed up to me um, a little while ago, you know, out, but that was just mm-hmm. of outside the house. I wouldn't be surprised if they're out there somewhere. Well, and, it, you know, when you get these photos, unfortunately, and maybe because of the electromagnetic uh, or the theory of electromagnetic activity, oftentimes these photos, you know, they're just whited out, like there was a burst of light or something of that nature, and it happens to the video cameras as well. But you're right. What, what would it be like with smartphones and cameras today? Everybody would have a picture. Right. You interviewed. Right. In fact, you have a wonderful chapter in your book uh, that covers a number of uh, eyewitness interviews, but... <clears throat> You know, had I seen this, William, uh, had I been involved, it would have a major impact on my life, period. It would be one of those events where you said, 
you know, I don't, I don't care what anybody says. There is life after death, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I want to make sure that I'm not one of these guys that ends up wherever this uh, poltergeist is. When you interviewed these people, did had it? I mean, did their experience have a lasting effect on them? Uh, you know, that, that's it's very, very fascinating. Um, for many of them, uh, definitely yes, and all different impacts. Uh, one of the police officers is—I uh, don't know if he was at the time, but I know he's extremely uh, religious uh, now, and I believe as a result of, of the event. Um, others, you know, have turned to alcohol, unfortunately, uh, and others have been fine, like Officer uh, Joe Tomek, who, who is retired and. Um, he's, you know, he's not thrown off by it, uh, but he's fascinated by it. Uh, he, you know, as he said, and as they say in the book, he, you know, he, he says, you know, there's it's been 40 years and hardly a day goes by. I don't think about it. And, and I talked to a few people that were like, nah, I really don't think about it anymore. <laughs> you know? But of course, it depends on what they saw. If they just saw a TV uh, slowly lower itself, it's a fascinating thing, but perhaps it didn't, uh, you know, stick in their mind. You know, it's very, very strange the different uh, reactions in the spectrum. But I, I would say, uh, you know, most of them it had uh, a real, a real lasting uh, impact. And um, unfortunately for some of them, it was a negative impact. But I would say for most of them, it was, uh, it was not as negative. You know, in other words, you know, not everybody turned to drinking and whatnot. So, uh, thank goodness. But uh, it's very interesting whenever I lecture because uh, a lot of times children or family members of witnesses who are no longer around uh, contribute and tell what happened to them after uh, the afterwards of it, which is always fascinating uh, to me. Whether it's you know he told us the stories all the time at all the you know, all the holiday events or, you know, he had to go see a psychiatrist for three years or uh, he couldn't talk about it unless he drank or, you know, just a whole spectrum of, uh, of things. But, uh, but the best stories are the ones where it changed people's lives for the better. Um, like officer, uh, uh, officer, uh, Holsworth, who was across the street, the first responding officer, I was told that the last lecture I did by, um, uh, by one of the family members that uh, uh, that he was convinced uh, of life after death, and he feels that he he saw into another place that you know most people never get a look at. So uh, you know, and those are the fascinating parts to the story. Intriguing indeed, but it leads me to this one, and you know. A very important one. You're the author. You wrote the book. You did the research. How's it impacted you? Oh, uh, quite a lot. In, in, and I think in all good ways. It really it brought a new dimension of magic back into my life, I guess. Uh, magic may not be the right term, but I think you get what I mean out of that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I, uh, I was always open-minded, but before this, um, I was in the probably uh, exist due to, uh, you know, people that I know have had these experiences, that kind of thing. 
but still in the, you know, I don't quite know what to make of it pile. And now it's not there anymore. Um, before that, I always believed in UFOs. Uh, but a lot of times, even people who believe in UFOs, uh, you know, they're always like, oh, don't talk to the ghost people. They're crazy. You know, we'll stay over here because we're more scientific, you know. But now we're finding out that all of the paranormal things are, are much more linked in, in some ways than we ever thought. And that's fascinating uh, to me. Um, and uh, so it has uh, profoundly changed me from that point of view. And also, I was shocked at the people I was close to, people in my family, close friends, people who never shared with me their paranormal experiences, but now did share it because of the book. And, you know, I asked them, why didn't you ever mention this to me? And they're like, oh, come on. You know, what would have you had said? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, you know, who wants to tell Bill the Magician about this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so... uh I was amazed at all the people sharing uh, their stories, people that I know, trust, very close to, even family members. And that's uh, um, that's been wonderful, that now they can share these stories with me because they know that I'm not going to laugh at them or you know think weird of them. All right, I've been selfish. I, uh, I need to turn to some of the questions out of our chat room. Richard wants to know, uh, I'm getting a credible report here, fascinating, but we, uh, but are there any particular ideas as to just what is the causation? Do some become spirits stuck in the mid-state or what? Um, you know, and that, that, of course, is a lot of people say they have the definitive answer. Um, I'm more open as to that, but the best theory that I heard was uh, in quantum mechanics or quantum physics um a lot of the research i did pointed to the fact that these things um or even spirits for that matter aren't necessarily you know the dead come back to life but they may be actually living in a parallel world now i know somebody could say well that's ridiculous bill that sounds even more far-fetched and i admit all of these explanations are (laughs) far-fetched quote-unquote because you know we're dealing with the paranormal but, um, uh, you know, there was a case where uh, a girl recognized a house that, that's been, you know, haunting her in her dreams. And when she knocked on the door, um, uh, you know, the family was very, you know, screamed because she was the quote-unquote spirit that was haunting them on the staircase. And she was having dreams of going down the staircase. So, I mean, she wasn't dead at all. She was actually living. And that was a very interesting kind of, you know, parallel universe string theory kind of occurrence. And and uh, so cases like that um, lead me to believe that. But then again, you can argue, well, that's not all the cases, you know, right. so that there's other cases where maybe it is that, you know. Um, so it's, it, it's very interesting. I don't like to close my mind to, uh, you know, never say never kind of thing. But uh, for me, it's more of the uh, parallel universe thing uh, rather than you know, it being demons or dead people coming back. But again, you know, I could be wrong. I'm, I don't want to close my mind to this because uh, look how far I've come in the last two years. So, All you right. know, uh, I want to keep going. William, I want you to tell everybody in the remaining one minute how they can learn more about you, where they can get your book, and uh, uh, discover where you're lecturing next. Oh, well, that's great because it's very easy at uh, worldsmosthauntedhouse.com. 
there's an event calendar, there's links to where you can buy the book. Um, even uh, there's a shop with some collectibles, and some of the things go to some nice charities, so check that out. And there's also some free things for listeners there, so uh, hopefully you check it out and you like it. Once again, that's uh, Worlds with an S, uh, MostHauntedHouse.com. It's a great read. And I've got one question. You'll have 30 seconds to answer it, William. If it's a parallel universe, then there's no life after death, or there is life after death and parallel universes? Uh, well, the, the theory is that there's technically no death. Okay, I'll take that one. <laughs> That's a great answer. All right, sir. It's been a pleasure to have to... you. Pleasure to have you join us today. Uh, we've just run out of time. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. And again, I want to thank our guest and all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. And remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.